Esther chapters 8 and 9. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the, the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time, in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king Hasir King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, 
and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Perishandatha, and Delphon, and Aspatha, and Paretha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Arisai, and Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten, ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, 
the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the king, kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regards to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Good morning. Thank you, Laura. Excellent job reading. My voice thanks you that I don't also have to read that and then preach. So. Welcome again to Hiawatha. We're glad you're here, especially if you're a visitor. We're glad you're joining us. And for those who are watching online, not joining us in person, we're glad you're here also. As we've already said, we are wrapping up a four-week series in Esther. So if you look in your Bible, Esther is 10 chapters. We're preaching the whole story of Esther, but not every word of the book. And that'll be true today. Laura read all of chapters 8 and 9. We're only going to look at four uh, things from those two chapters. But we read it all so that you get that whole story and have that in your head, and then we'll pull some certain pieces of that out and uh, look at that and see what we get from that. So, as we've said every week, the way we're looking at Esther, the way we read it here at Hiawatha, because we believe this is the way the Bible reads the Old Testament, is it reads Jesus as the main character of the whole story of the Bible. He's the main point of every passage. So as we look at Esther, we're going to look at where is Jesus in here. And this is called typology. Similar in some ways to allegory, but different. And that could be a whole sermon by itself, but it's not going to be. If you have more questions about that, you can go back and listen to the first Esther sermon where Chris talked a little bit about that. Or uh, come ask me about it after the service or ask Chris or Spencer or one of the other elders. So... You've heard us say this, if you've been here for Esther, and you might think, yeah, like you mentioned a few passages where that happens in the New Testament, but is that really how the whole New Testament reads the Old Testament? Like, is that really what it does, or is that just what you guys are doing? No, that's really what it does. And if you're curious about that, or you want to know more about that, I strongly encourage you to take uh, the HLI class, Biblical Theology in the Fall, which is taught by Chris and by Laura. And basically the entire class is just looking at different passages and doing this with different passages of the Old Testament, looking at New Testament passages and seeing how this is done, why this is a valid means of interpretation, why we say that we believe the Bible reads itself this way. If you don't want to wait till the fall, if that's just too long to wait, I strongly encourage you to read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews basically just does that. It's 13 chapters, and every chapter it basically just pulls something from the Old Testament and then talks about how Jesus is both the fulfillment of that and greater than that. So it'll say, hey, let's talk about the temple in the Old Testament where the Israelites worshipped and God was. 
And then he'll say, oh, but really, Jesus is the ultimate temple, and that's really about him. Let's talk about the high priest in the Old Testament and what his role was. Oh, but really, the role of the high priest really just points to Jesus. He's the greater high priest, the high priest who did once for all time what the human high priests of the Old Testament had to do over and over again. So, uh, that is my encouragement to you in that. So today we're going to talk a lot about enemies. We're going to look at the enemies that Esther and Mordecai and the Jews faced in Esther, and we're going to look at how those enemies are small pictures and shadows and reflections of greater enemies that we have. So before we actually get into the text, we are going to ask the question, who and what are our enemies, biblically? We can all think of in life people that we would call enemies. It might be a coworker, it might be a family member, it might not be someone you know personally, it might just be someone that you don't like or that you hate or that you think does evil and is your enemy. We see Esther 9.16, it says the Jews got relief from their enemies. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at what it means to get relief from your enemies. But we have to ask that question, who or what are our enemies? And what we think might be our enemies day to day or week to week in our own lives, in our city, in our country, or in the world are not necessarily the enemies that Scripture and that God through Scripture tells us are our true enemies. So our true enemies, first, Satan. In Ephesians 6, it says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. People of Hiawatha Church, ultimately, your enemies are not people. Ultimately, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, that's not to say that there are not people in the world who do evil. That's not to say evil shouldn't be punished. But that's to say, ultimately, our enemies are not people. Ultimately, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And if you pour all your energy or your time or your effort into trying to defeat and fight merely flesh and blood enemies, you will be disappointed. You will never have relief from your enemies because those enemies will just keep coming. Because all the evil that we see people do, all those enemies of flesh and blood, those are just pictures and manifestations and workings out of sin. If you don't deal with sin and the enemy of sin, you can never defeat those other enemies. So first, Satan is our enemy. And we're going to look in a few minutes at Haman and see how Haman is a picture of Satan in this passage. But also, death is our enemy and sin is our enemy. Those are the three main enemies of the Christian, Satan, sin, and death. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If you look at the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also talks about how sin is one of our enemies, uh, but today's passage is long enough, so we're not going to look at a whole other chapter to see that. But Satan, sin, and death are our main enemies. And look at what it says here in 1 Corinthians. It says Christ is reigning, and he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So that term of putting your enemies under your feet, if you were a king back in the day, and you went to war with another king and another kingdom and you won, what you would do is those people would be captured, they would be sold into bondage in different ways, 
And the king usually would be bound and then brought from the battlefield or from his kingdom to your kingdom. And you would bring him. So if I'm the king that won, the losing king would come and they would lay him down in front of me. And then you'd put your foot on his head. And that's what it meant to be under his feet. And then 99 times out of 100, they would kill him while he was laying there. So Christ has defeated all his enemies. He did that on the cross. Sin, Satan, and death have been defeated. But they have not yet been fully destroyed. Christ is reigning, and he is putting those enemies under his feet. They've been defeated, but not yet destroyed. And the last enemy he will destroy is death. If you read the last couple chapters of Revelation, you see first God destroys Satan. Then he destroys sin. Then he destroys death. But this idea of defeat but not destroyed is important in this passage. We'll come back to that. But now, let's get in to Esther. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. I'm going to give an extremely brief summary of Haman's story. We've talked about this the last two weeks. So I'm done. if you feel like, wow, that was really incomplete. Yes, it is. Because if you want more, you can go back and listen to the last two sermons or read chapters 3 through 7 of Esther and get Haman's story. But basically, Haman was second to the king and there was an edict that was proclaimed that people had to bow down to him when he was out walking around or doing different uh, business in the name of the king. And Mordecai refused to bow down to him one time. And Haman basically lost his mind had an extreme overreaction and decided, I'm going to kill Mordecai for this. But I'm not just going to kill Mordecai, I'm going to kill all the Jews. And so he enacted this plot, and then through a series of events, he ended up being kind of caught in the plot that he had enacted and killed. But Haman is the Jews' enemy, clearly, in the book of Esther. And Haman here is a picture or a type of the greater enemy that we have, which is Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Like Haman, Satan desires to destroy his enemies. Like Haman, Satan bides his time as he waits to destroy. Haman waited a year from when he first had the thought, I'm going to kill Mordecai and all the Jews, to when his plot was actually approved by the king and put into action. A whole year, for 12 months, every day, he was thinking, I'm going to kill that guy, I'm going to kill all the Jews. But it took him a year to put it into action, and he was consumed by that for a year. In a similar way, Satan waits. He prowls around, he bides his time. He wants to destroy believers, his enemies, the people of God. Also, like Haman, Satan was overcome by the strength of the king. So Haman uh, is not able in the end to fulfill his plot. He's killed. He's found out through a series of events with Esther and King Ahasuerus, and he ends up being killed. And you can read more about that in chapters 6 and 7 or listen to last week's sermon. But like that, in Luke 11, Jesus here is talking about Satan. Satan is the strong man in this passage. And Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him or overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. 
So Jesus is saying, yeah, Satan's strong. He's the strong man. But guess what? I'm here now, and I'm stronger. And I'm going to walk into Satan's house. I'm going to tie him up. I'm going to strip off his armor, and I'm going to plunder his goods. And you see that if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell the story of Jesus' life and of salvation. You see Jesus plundering Satan's goods. And how does he do that? By casting out demons. Satan's goods are people. People that he had possessed with demons that were controlled by him, that were under his authority, that were under his power. And Jesus comes stronger than Satan, kicks those demons out of those people, and plunders those people. He removes them from Satan's authority and brings them under his own authority. Like Haman, Satan was overcome by the strength of Jesus Christ. Satan was strong, but he wasn't strong enough. So now in Esther, we've got some good news because Haman is gone. He's dead, which is great, but there's still a problem because the plot that he set in motion is moving. And in the Persian Empire, the king had uh, written an edict saying that the Persians could kill, destroy, and annihilate all the Jews in the different provinces in the entire kingdom of Persia on a certain day. And this was written in the king's hand and sealed with his signet ring. And once that's done, it can't be undone. It can't be revoked. There's no way to do that. So Haman's gone, but there's a problem because his plot is still in play. It can't be revoked. So what do you do? Esther goes to the king and says, can you please revoke this so my people don't die? I'm distressed for what's going to happen. And the king says, actually, it can't be revoked. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Bring in Mordecai, and I'm going to have him write a new edict. He can write as he sees fit an edict under my authority to allow the Jews to defend themselves against those who would kill them on the day it's been appointed to happen. So Mordecai does that, as we saw in the passage. He comes in, he writes a new edict. It's sent out to the entire nation, the entire kingdom. So the first enemy, Satan, is defeated but not destroyed. In Esther, Haman is defeated and destroyed. He's been killed, but his plot is still going, which is a problem. So what happens, Mordecai comes in, writes a new edict, which gives the Jews a chance to defend themselves. And look at the result of that. So after this happens, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light, gladness, joy, and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Mordecai has just acted with the king's authority in the king's name to save people who were due to be annihilated. Mordecai here is a type of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Christ did. He came to us who were under the authority and the power and the dominion of sin, Satan, and death. He came acting with the king's authority, God the Father, in the king's name, God the Father's name, to save us, just as Mordecai does here for the Jews. And what's the result? The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Now this is really interesting that it says they had this now, because it's almost nine full months from the day that the new edict is written 
to the day that it's enacted, the day that was uh, marked for the destruction of the Jews where they're allowed to fight back. It's almost nine full months. But they still have light, gladness, joy, and honor now. They don't just have it later after it happens, after they've fought their enemies, after they've defeated them. They have that now. Why do they have it now? It's still nine months away. Because they have hope. Hope, biblically, is the eager expectation of a good outcome. So hope is not necessarily how we might use it, where you say, I hope you have a good day, or I hope you like your dinner. And it's kind of a 50-50, like you might have a good day, you might not, but I hope you do. Biblically, that's not what hope is. Hope is the expectation that the outcome is going to be good. Hope is eagerly awaiting that outcome. That's what the Jews have here. They have light, gladness, joy, and honor because they have hope that on the day they're due to be destroyed and annihilated, there's going to be a good outcome. And we know from Laura's reading that that's the case. The same is true of Jesus Christ. Just as Mordecai here is a type of Christ, in the same way Jesus came, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead to conquer sin, Satan, and death. And now because of that, we have light, gladness, joy, and honor. And we have that right now, even though those enemies have not been fully destroyed. Why? Because we have hope. We have the eager expectation of that final good outcome that Revelation talks about. And the reason we have that is because of who Jesus is. So great is his authority, so great is his power, so great is his word. His word is the ultimate edict that can never be revoked. And if he says, this is the way it is, if he says you're going to be saved, if he says those enemies will be destroyed, then it's true and it's going to happen. Hiawatha, have hope in Jesus Christ. Have hope in that eager expectation of that final good outcome. Also, it says, in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. This is a picture of the gospel. Think of the gospel. Wherever it goes, wherever that message of Jesus' death and resurrection goes, to every city, to every province, everywhere in the world that it's gone for the last 2,000 years, it brings gladness and joy. Now, not for every single person. There are always people who reject that message, but there are people who accept it. It brings gladness and joy everywhere it goes. Another piece of hope. So powerful is the message, so strong, so true, that everywhere it goes, it brings joy and hope. Everywhere it goes, people believe it. Everywhere it goes, people accept it. We have hope in what Jesus has done. We have hope for the future in the final accomplishment of the things he has promised us at the end of time. All right. Esther 9, a few selected verses. In the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Again, no surprise, since this is what we're doing with Esther. But this is a picture of the gospel. This is a type of Jesus Christ. 
In this highlighted section, if you take out the word Jews and replace it with the word Jesus, this is what you get. On the very day when the enemies of Jesus hoped to gain mastery over him, the reverse occurred. Jesus gained mastery over those who hated him. On the very day when sin, Satan, and death thought that they had gained mastery over him, the day that Jesus died on the cross, that was the very day that Jesus gained mastery over sin, Satan, and death. That reversal occurred. Satan stands there looking and he sees Christ on the cross. He sees him dying. He hears Christ say, it is finished. And he sees him dying. He thinks, finally, I won. I was stronger. Jesus is dead. I, with the help of sin and death, conquered the Son of God. But it was a reversal. Satan didn't know that two days later Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Satan didn't know that death was the very means by which Jesus would gain mastery over him. Satan didn't know that Jesus' death on the cross to conquer sin and his resurrection from the grave to conquer death and the strength that that shows that he uses to conquer Satan, that those things happen in the very moment that they thought they had gained mastery over Jesus. Also, notice the end of this section. It says, the Jews got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. They didn't kill all who hated them. They killed a lot. 75,000 is a lot. But it doesn't say they killed all. Relief from sin, Satan, and death does not require total annihilation. Someday that will happen. Someday sin, Satan, and death will be fully destroyed and annihilated. But they have not been yet. But we can still have relief from them. As Christians, this is hugely encouraging, especially as we deal with sin. You know that as we struggle against sin, sin is not fully eliminated. It's not fully destroyed. And sometimes we can have those thoughts of, man, what is going on? Why can I not get rid of this? Why is this not gone? Why can I not get over this sin? Why does sin keep hounding me? Why does it keep coming up? Why is temptation still there? We can have relief from that enemy, even though it's not totally destroyed. Relief does not require total annihilation. It requires believing and trusting in that reversal that Jesus did on the cross. And Scripture acknowledges this all over the New Testament. 1 John chapter 1 is a great small picture of that, where John goes back and forth between saying, now, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But if you confess your sin, Christ forgives you. If you say you've never sinned, now you're calling God a liar. Now I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. But when you sin, there's one who comes to the Father in your defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who died to make payment for our sins on the cross. So it's this back and forth of, now don't say there's no sin because that's not true. But I'm writing this so that sin can be fought against. But if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. But I'm writing this so you won't sin. But when you sin, Here's where you go. You go to Jesus Christ. So be encouraged, Hiawatha, as you struggle with sin, knowing that we can have relief from it, and someday it will be totally destroyed. Also note, only Christ can bring that relief. Without Christ, you can possibly, for short periods of time, gain temporary mastery over specific sins or certain pieces of sin, but you can never conquer sin. You can maybe do a little better in one area or a little better in another area. But usually you measure that only in action. 
And Christ says in the Gospel of Matthew, it's not only about what you do, it's about what you think and what you feel. That's also sin. Only Christ can bring relief. Only Christ can transform the heart, which is the source of sin. Sin is acted out in our eyes, in our hands, in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts, but the source of sin is our heart. Only Christ can cut out that sin-soaked heart and replace it with his heart. Finally, Mordecai recorded these things after the Jews have gained mastery, slaughtered their enemies. Mordecai recorded these things, sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow to gladness and mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So this is the inauguration of the Jewish festival of Purim. This is where that celebration started. This is where it comes from. And again, it's not just a great festival celebrating physical triumph over physical enemies. It is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow to gladness, from mourning to a holiday. In the same way, Hiawatha, Jesus Christ is the one who ultimately gives us relief from our enemies. Jesus Christ is the one who ultimately turns sorrow into gladness and mourning into a holiday. Our sorrow and our gladness over sin, Satan, and death that we weren't strong enough to overcome was transformed into gladness and a holiday, a day of celebration through Jesus' death and resurrection. The day of sorrow and mourning that the disciples felt when Jesus died was turned into a day of gladness and celebration, a holiday when he rose from the dead. And we still celebrate that. We celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday every year as believers. Jesus Christ is the one who ultimately has given us relief from our enemies, who's turned sorrow to gladness, who's turned mourning into a holiday. So there you go. Some great pictures from Esther 8 and 9. And we've reached the end, and it's great. It's like, all right, we got the happy ending. And it's not just about the Jews getting their happy ending in Esther. We as believers get that happy ending through Jesus Christ. But we have to look at one more thing. There's actually a little problem that still exists. Because for us, we have three main enemies, sin, Satan, and death. But God actually has a fourth main enemy. And that enemy is us. People are an enemy of God, Scripture makes very clear. And that's a problem because now when you read Esther 8 and 9, you're not on the side of the Jews who are killing the enemies. You're the enemy that's going to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated by God. And that's a problem. So what do we do with that? Let's look briefly at Esther 9, 5 and some verses from Romans 8. So it says here, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Now again, replace Jew with Jesus. Jesus struck all his enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. That's what he did to sin, Satan, and death. That's what he is doing to them. But look at this last part. It says, Jesus did as he pleased to those who hated him. 
We are the ones who hated him. If you're here this morning or you're listening online this morning and you are not a Christian, it doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. It doesn't matter how good or bad you are because you're not as good as Christ and you're not perfect and that's God's standard. You are God's enemy. You have hated God. You have desired, like Haman, to destroy God. You have lost your mind at the thought or the person of Jesus Christ. And those of us who are believers, we have been that person. We have been the person that lost their mind and wanted to destroy Jesus. We have been God's enemy. But look at how Jesus treated those who hated him. Look what he was pleased to do to those who hated him. Romans 8, or sorry, Romans 5, 8 through 10. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Jesus did as he pleased to those who hated him, but it pleased him to die for them and save them. Not to kill them, destroy them, and annihilate them. God, the Father, killed, destroyed, and annihilated Jesus Christ to spare us from that. We deserved that killing, that death, that annihilation. But God did it to Jesus instead so that we don't have to endure that. So that, rather than continuing to be his enemy, we can be not only his friend, but part of his family. People of Hiawatha, those of you who are here, who are listening online, who are not believers, know this. This is what Jesus Christ is pleased to do for you. This is how Jesus Christ is pleased to treat you. He was pleased to die for you so that you could be saved. So that you could avoid that total annihilation that you deserved. That's what he did for me. That's the reason I can stand here and preach this and be encouraged by it and have it be a message of hope and not despair. That's why it can turn from mourning to gladness because of what Jesus did. Finally, remember this as we close. Jesus has bound Satan and plundered his house. Satan is strong, but he's not as strong as Jesus Christ. Jesus has plundered Satan's house and the plunder is people. He's taken people from Satan and brought them to himself. Jesus, through the gospel, has brought us light, gladness, joy, and honor. And we have that now, even as we wait for the final fulfillment of what he's promised. We have pieces of it, but not the whole of it yet. But we wait for that. We hope for it. We have the eager expectation of that good outcome. What Jesus has done for us is a cause for feasting and gladness. Celebrate, rejoice. Jesus Christ has saved you from annihilation. He died to save you from sin. He died to reconcile you to God the Father. Rejoice in that. Celebrate that. And finally, don't ever forget that Jesus did as he pleased to those who hated him. And to borrow language from Esther 10, which we didn't read, he was pleased to seek their welfare and speak peace to them. That is what Jesus did for the cross. He sought our welfare through his death. He spoke peace to us rather than annihilation to us. That's what he was pleased to do to those who hated him. 
Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that it was your joy and your desire to speak peace to us and not annihilation. That it was your joy and your desire to seek our welfare and not our destruction. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you for loving us when we did not deserve it. I pray, God, for all of us who believe that we would rejoice and celebrate that today. And for everyone here or hearing this online who does not believe that they would know, Jesus, that you love them and you desire not to kill them, not to annihilate them, but to save them. Amen.